Fuck the trial. Flip the switch. I hope it doesn't even go that far. I hope somebody puts a bullet in his head outside the courtroom. That's what two other brothers had to say about their bag of shit brother that we're talking about in this episode today. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Cheshire, Connecticut is a cute little town nestled in New Haven County. Known for its beautiful fields, farms, and gardens, Cheshire offers a relaxing and scenic getaway that our minds conjure up when we think about picturesque parts of New England. And back in 2020, according to the census, Cheshire's population was just over 28,000. Despite this Gilmore Girls charm, Cheshire was the site of a horrifying crime in 2007, one that shook the community to its core. Sometimes referred to as the Cheshire Home Invasion Murders, these crimes profoundly impacted the town and the state of Connecticut. According to a friend of the victim's family, people in town refer to it as Cheshire's 9-11. Life was one way, and then it's another. That's right, and when this case went to trial, it would be the first time in state history that the Connecticut Judicial Branch offered post-traumatic stress assistance to jurors who served for two months on the trial because they'd been required to look at disturbing images and hear grisly testimony. The Pettit family was the epitome of a happy American family who lived in an affluent New England suburb. They were well-known and respected in Cheshire, and there were four of them. William and Jennifer, they were the mom and dad, and they had two daughters together, Michaela and Haley. William was an endocrinologist, a doctor, and Jennifer was a nurse and co-director of the health center at Cheshire Academy, which was a private boarding school there in Cheshire. Jennifer had met the good Dr. Pettit at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, where she was a new oncology nurse and he was a third-year med student at the University of Pittsburgh. They were married in 1985. And then in 1989, they welcomed their oldest daughter, Haley. In 2007, Haley graduated from Miss Porter's school, where she played varsity cross-country, basketball, and crew, and was a high honor roll student. Like most driven young people, she didn't stop there. Haley was also elected to the senior leadership position of athletic association head, and she'd also won an award for exceptional community service. Later in 2007, Haley was set to attend Dartmouth College, where she wanted to study medicine. Well, it sounds like she was following mom and dad's footsteps in the medicine world. It, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it ran in the family, right? And, and Haley had not only been bright and driven, she was thoughtful and caring. Her mom, Jennifer, had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And after that, Haley actively fundraised to support MS research. She captained a walk MS team called Haley's Hope. And she was only 17 at the time, but this was really important to her. And her younger sister, Michaela, wanted to follow in Haley's footsteps. So after Haley left for college, Michaela was planning to continue Haley's Hope, but she wanted to rename it Michaela's Miracle. She was 11, but despite her young age, Michaela liked Rachel Ray and often even cooked for the family. Although they didn't know it, Michaela cooked the last meal the family would ever enjoy together on July 22, 2007. July 22 was a Sunday. It was one of those cozy, lazy, enjoyable kind of Sundays. Jennifer took Michaela to the local stop and shop to pick up some groceries. Bill called on his way home from around a golf, and Jennifer had asked him to stop by the farm stand for fresh veggies. Bill got home around 7.15, and Michaela had already made tomato, bruschetta, and pasta. 
Man, I didn't even know what bruschetta was when I was 11. I, I thought I was fancy if I had me some Chef Boyardee in the kitchen. <laughs> After dinner, Bill took the Sunday paper into the sunroom while the girls settled into the living room to watch Army Wives, a show that they regularly enjoyed together. When that show ended at 11, Haley went to her room and Michaela took her new Harry Potter book and got into her parents' bed, laying next to her mom. Bill had fallen asleep on the sunroom sofa. When I picture this scene in my mind, it's all the things that we hope for, right? I mean, time with people we love and care about, our kids becoming self-sufficient and enjoying our hobbies and buying local produce from fruit stands, Sunday newspapers, and Harry Potter books. It's freedom, comfort, happiness. It's all the things. But what none of the Pettits knew was that while Jennifer and Michaela were at the grocery store, a 26-year-old man named Joshua Komisarjewski had noticed them. He didn't just notice them, though. He followed them to see where they lived. I already don't like this one bit. Sounds like these girls are in for trouble and it's gonna get ugly, which of course is why we're here, I guess. Yeah, so Komisarjewski was far from a model citizen or even a decent human. He was on parole for drug-related crimes and from what I understand, he had a number of prior burglary convictions. He began abusing cocaine and methamphetamine as a teen, and he sort of had this uh, career of robbing upscale homes to support a crystal meth habit, according to some past parole hearing documents. And unfortunately, the Pettit's money may not have been the only thing about Jennifer and Michaela that caught his eye. How old are these girls? One was 11. Michaela's 11, and, and Jennifer's mom. She's in her 40s, I think. Okay, and the other sister? 17. Okay. So 11, 17, and then we got mom. I don't know. Can you do this? You got kids again. Can you do this episode by yourself? I really don't think I want to know what happens. I mean, I could, but you, everybody says you're the funny one, so I think a lot of people would stop listening if you left. Well, I, damn it, I'm offended. They should be liking me for my good looks, not my humor. <laughs> looks for radio, Bob, I keep telling you. Right? <laughs> So Komisarjewski entered the Pettit's house through an unlocked basement door. Once inside, he grabbed a baseball bat he found leaning against the basement stairs. He went into the sunroom where William was sleeping, and he hit William four or five times in the head and all over. It was bad, very bad. Komisarjewski wasn't alone, though. He had brought somebody that he'd met in a halfway house in 2006, uh, this person uh, named Hayes. And the two of them tied up William's wrists and ankles with plastic zip ties and rope. And William remembered one of them telling the other, If he moves, put two bullets in him. And the girls and their mother were then bound in their respective rooms. So Jen, the mom, was tied up in her room and the girls in each of their own bedrooms. Their wrists and ankles were tied to bed their bedposts and pillowcases were put over their heads. After restraining the victims, Koma Sarjewski and Hayes began searching the house for cash. They took w William to the basement where they tied him to a support pole, and the two just continued ransacking the house for money, but they didn't find the payout that they were after. Then, during their search, they found a checkbook and believed that the Pettits had tens of thousands of dollars in their bank account. There was an entry in the register that said thirty or $40,000, something like that. And they decided they were going to steal $15,000. Uh, fifteen will buy a whole lot of meth. <laughs> That's right. So Hayes left the house and can be seen on surveillance video from a gas station just after 7 a.m. buying $10 worth of gas. 
and he splits that $10 into two gas cans that he had taken from the pet at home. After returning to the house with the gasoline, Hayes then took Jennifer to the bank. Okay, let me make sure I'm 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 tracking with you here and got got this right. They broke in around three o'clock in the morning, spent about four hours looking for cash or whatever, and then one of them goes to this gas station and there's a plan to go to the bank. Yeah, so a significant amount of time has passed, and these two have been turning the house upside down looking for cash or, you know, I imagine just other liquid valuables, and they weren't really finding what they wanted. So it was around 9 a.m. when Hayes took Jen to the bank that Monday morning. And once they got there, uh, Hayes waited out in his vehicle or in the vehicle, and Jen went inside, and she bravely told the bank teller, when she you know, asked for this money, that there were two men holding her family hostage in their home and that they were threatening to kill the entire family. And these interactions are captured on the bank's surveillance cameras. Now, the bank manager approved Jen's $15,000 transaction and then called 911 and reported the situation to police. The manager told the dispatcher that Jen said the home invaders were being nice and that she believed they only wanted money. Now, the Cheshire police responded to the bank's report by assessing the situation and setting up a vehicle perimeter without revealing their presence. So, wait, they didn't go bust down the door and snatch up these turds? Yeah, that didn't happen, and we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But before we do, I think it would be a good time for you to go ahead and provide folks with a trigger warning. Oh, good lord. I knew this was going to happen. How many triggers are we talking about today? Uh, I think you probably should just cover all of them. All of them? Uh, if it's any indication, you know, like I said, when this case went to trial, it was the first time in state history that the Connecticut Judicial Branch offered this post-traumatic stress assistance to jurors who had served just because of how awful the images and the testimony was in this case. All right, folks. Well, um, here's your trigger warning. Apparently, this is going to include kids, sexual assault, torture, murder, and a whole bunch of other bad shit. So, I mean, obviously, you're listening to a true crime podcast, so you know we're not talking about rainbows and sunshine here, but, uh, you know, if any of those particular subjects are, are a problem, now's the time to bail out. Yeah, so up to this point, Bill had been beaten badly with a baseball bat, and all the women were tied up. But while Hayes took Jen to the bank, Komisarjewski sexually assaulted 11-year-old Michaela. And we know exactly what happened for several reasons. He confessed to it during his interrogation, which you can listen to on YouTube if you are so interested, but uh, warning, it's heavy and it's gross and I don't necessarily recommend it. We also know that what he did from the state's medical examiner who found semen in Michaela's body during her autopsy and Komisarjewski photographed the assault and rape on his cell phone. Are you kidding me? What a disgusting scumbag. How? I mean, that's... What a... Oh, low-level, non-life-form piece of scum. Yeah, when he was interrogated by police, Komisarjewski claimed that he thought Michaela was 14 or 16, like that would make what he did any less horrific or right. repugnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes it all better. No, it doesn't. You're a bag of shit. I, w I wish I could translate the facial expression you just made into audio, because, folks, you can't see him, but the face he made, um, it's, the, it's hopefully the face you're making when you hear this. Uh, it's awful. And the evil that he would inflict on this family was far from over. When Hayes returned from the bank with Jen, Komisarjewski told him what he had done to Michaela. And according to Hayes, 
Commissar Jeski then told him, all right, well, you've got to rape Jen to square things up since he had raped Michaela. What the hell kind of sick game is going on here? Yeah, and Bill, who was still in the basement, could hear Hayes' assault on his wife on the floor directly above him. Oh. He yelled up and heard one of them say, Don't worry, it's all going to be over in a couple of minutes. William then managed to free himself uh, from the way he'd been restrained against that pole in the basement. And reflecting on this moment, he would say, quote, I thought it's now or never. Because in my mind, at that moment, I thought they were going to shoot all of us. He said it felt like his heart was racing 200 beats a minute. Uh, but he, remember, he was seriously injured. And it took a, a, an amount of time and serious effort for him to just get out of the basement. So there was a door that led to the outside. And he did make it outside. He would eventually manage to kind of crawl up the stairs into the yard. And, and my understanding is he basically was so weak that he rolled himself over toward a neighbor's garage through the yard. And when the neighbor saw Bill, he was unrecognizable due to the severity of his injuries. A local newspaper reported that Bill had lost seven pints of blood during the seven hours of hell that he had endured that morning. Damn. Uh, and so, Bob, for, from a medical perspective, seven pints, is that a little bit, a lot bit? That's, that's a lot of blood. That's more than you want to lose. So... During Hayes' confession, he said that while he was raping Jen on the living room floor, Commissar Jeski barged in and yelled that Bill had escaped. Hayes responded to this news by strangling Jen until she was unconscious and probably dead. Hayes and Commissar Jeski doused her lifeless body and areas of the house with gasoline. They poured gas in the daughter's bedroom, and they poured it on Haley and Michaela as well. The two lit the house on fire and fled the scene. They got in the Pettit family car and made it about a block away before they crashed into a police cruiser and were subsequently arrested uh, after they were removed from the vehicle. All right, so they're not winning any driving awards. It's a shame the car didn't explode right then. But So the police have been called before this back when jen was at the bank so like what was going on here did it take a while for them to respond or what was the deal with that i mean how did how did this even i mean it, i would think it would take some time for these things to go down and like why didn't they go in there when they got the call that the family's being held hostage yeah so the police had arrived at the house and were actually outside kind of staging and surrounding it before the fire was even lit Oh, that's just handy. So they're they're staging and surrounding the outside while there's this raping and murdering happening inside the house they're watching? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, or, or, or benefit of the doubt, are we thinking the raping and murdering was, for the most part, done, but the arson hadn't begun yet? Somewhere in there. Uh, the, the deal is... There's a potential, had we barged in that house when we, when we first got alerted, that we could have prevented some death and destruction. Absolutely. So due to the nature of the response, authorities have faced criticism for not rushing into the house during the ordeal. I mean, it, given the phone call from the bank teller uh, at the point, essentially when Jen is at the bank leaving, just, just walking out, that's when 911 is called. Uh, and so there is uh, decisions made, you know, they're not intercepted on the way back. And when police go, they kind of set up this, you know, command post and perimeter and all that sort of thing and just sort of sit out there and 
surround the house but don't actually make an attempt to, to go in. Uh, but according to the town manager, police did what they were trained to do. A police captain also testified later at one of the trials that standard procedure was followed. Okay, so this sounds to me, first of all, you kind of answered my question, or what you said, helped me find the answer wherever it fell off in the cobwebs of my head, that obviously we could have avoided Jan the mom being raped and strangled because she was alive and called the police and had to get from the bank back to the house and then all this crap to go down that any time the police could have intervened hmm. and stopped this. But it sounds like what the explanation is, and this was 2007, but it sounds like the explanation is very similar to where things used to be when it came to school shootings or active shooter incidents and where they are now that the, the old training for law enforcement was establish the perimeter, get a bunch of backup, get organized and go in an organized way. Whereas we've learned that doesn't freaking work. And now the way it's done is the very first officer arriving on scene moves toward the threat, which, mm -hmm. you know, makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So I hope the police in wherever this is are doing things differently these days. And I would like to think that some of them have a conscience and realize that doing them differently back in July of 2007 could mean these some of these people are still alive. Yeah. If I, not all of them. Right. As, as much as I wish the outcome here had been different. I can't say that the police, what they should have done in that scenario. I'm, I'm with you. We've learned a lot in years that waiting tends to just make things worse. And so there's this, the new way of doing things is to try to uh, approach and eliminate the threat as quickly as possible. Uh, so I'll leave scrutiny of their actions to the folks who are trained in those tactics uh, who can speak to it better than I can. But yeah, it's heartbreaking, right? It's just awful. And just like the, the first responders who surrounded the house that day have been sort of analyzed and criticized, some have criticized Bill, arguing that he should have done more to protect his family. And Komisar Jewski is among those critics. Okay, well, Komisar Jewski is about three levels below the dog shit on the bottom of my shoe. So who gives a rat's behind what he thinks and I can see maybe where people think, well, you know, he got himself out to, Bill got himself out to safety while bad things were happening to the others. On the other hand, you have to remember, this guy lost seven pints of blood. He was beaten, it sounds like, very badly. And if he was beaten to a point that he is unrecognizable, and I have seen people in that situation who were unrecognizable by the way they'd been beaten, and they were very close to death. When your brain has been insulted by a baseball bat a few times it's not exactly high functioning and your body isn't working the way it's supposed to you had these other injuries i don't know that he had you know the capacity to go intervene or if he had the physical ability but at the bare minimum you know the hindbrain was probably thinking safety it's kind of what we all default to it's what we do every day is just try to survive you know we go back to our like primitive thinking. And so hmm. that that might have been, some of that might have been involuntary as in I just need to get out and away from the threat. And he, he might have lacked the capacity, may not have been able to think or physically do something to help at that point. I imagine had he, you know, tried to intervene in the house there, he probably would be dead. He would have never made it to the neighbors to tell his story and provide 
evidence and testimony. Yeah, what if I told you he was on blood thinners? Oh, it, it's a miracle he's still alive. And that's he, what the doctor said whenever they uh, they treated him. If he lost seven pints of blood and he's on blood thinners, it's a miracle he's alive. Yeah, and I've seen some of the, the photos and stuff. I mean, his head injuries alone were... Whew, and let uh, me tell you something else. I don't, I don't know this guy, uh, this guy, Bill. I don't know anything about him. But I can tell you, if I were in this, I think pretty much anybody in this situation, and, and I don't know how this story ends, but I, I know some people are dying here. I think Bill probably, after this happened, would have much preferred that he never left that house or that he did try to do something if he was capable and got himself killed because I doubt it was really enjoyable for him to live knowing what had happened and living without the people he lost. Mm. Yeah, and uh, in the H, there's an HBO documentary about this case, and um, one of the things that was particularly, and there's plenty in in this whole incident, but one of the things that kind of stood out that was particularly moving and and heartbreaking in the documentary is uh, Bill talks about, and I think it actually comes through the perspective of Jen's parents, so his wife's parents, which I've already mentioned that you know Hayes strangled her to death. So whenever Bill is able to talk to them for the first time. He apologizes for not saving their daughter and their grandkids. And their response is, we're so happy that you're okay. I just thought that was, you know, that's what you want, right? I mean, to to see uh, you have this family that's clearly just incredibly grief-stricken with everything that they're going through. And so his in-laws Instead of saying, you know, and you can imagine, right, some people probably wouldn't handle that as well. And it would be, you know, you failed us and our daughter and whatever. And that wasn't their response at all. Their response was, there was nothing you could do. And it was the right thing for you to do, to do what you did. And we're just glad you're okay. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not like he had full function of his faculties and was capable of doing anything and chose to kind of stroll out the front door and go sit in one of these cop cars that was just watching the whole thing go down. That's not what happened here. It doesn't sound like if he had his mental abilities and his physical capabilities, he probably would have done some things differently that day. But the man can't, and you can't blame him for that. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to clarify. So the statement that I was making about the critics it comes from uh, in Komarczajewski's diary, which was entered into evidence. He called Bill, quote, a coward and claimed that he could have saved his family if he wanted to. That's absolutely disgusting. Coward calling Bill a coward? This is the guy that's, you know, raping and killing and... Oh, come on. Come on. Yeah, so going back to the crime scene for a moment, uh, the Pettit girls, so Michaela and Haley, both died from smoke inhalation. Haley had somehow managed to escape her restraints and ran out of her bedroom into the hallway where she collapsed and ultimately died. Her body was found at the top of the staircase. Her feet had third and fourth degree burns, indicating that she got very close to the fire around the time she died. So when it comes to those degrees of burns, typical nomenclature is superficial, like a sunburn, partial thickness, it's where you get blistering and whatnot, and then full thickness. And most places use first, second, and third degree burns. We try to call them by what they're actually you know, called so you understand what they mean. I didn't even know fourth degree burns was a thing until I was researching this case and, and then had to look it up myself. So I'm glad it's, that you're kind of clarifying this. It, it kind of is and it isn't. It, I, I, you don't hear it very much in most texts. 
its first, second, and third degree, which correspond to superficial partial thickness and full thickness. You rarely hear people calling it a fourth degree, which just means at that point you're down into the bone. The interesting thing is that when you get to, I'm going to stick to what I know, which is the superficial, partial, and full thickness, when you get into the um, those full thickness burns that it literally burnt away the top parts of the skin and the lower parts of the skin, the fat beneath it and into the muscle, you know, the part that's burned away, the part that's really deep, that part doesn't hurt. You know, there's not, you don't have the nerves there to cause pain, but what's painful is the entire ring around the burn, the edges where it transitions from burnt to unburnt flesh. That is excruciatingly painful. Those areas are. Uh, the stuff that's burned away, it, it doesn't hurt because it's gone. And the medical examiner who performed the autopsy couldn't determine if the burns occurred before or after her death. Michaela's little body was still in her room. She was in her bed, her hands tied to it, and her lower body hanging off of it. Forensic testing found bleach on Michaela's clothes. Investigators believe that Komar Sarjewski was uh, had tried to essentially destroy or cover up to get rid of the DNA evidence that he had left from when he assaulted her. Although both Hayes and Komosarjewski confessed to the murders, each claimed that the other was the driving force or mastermind behind the home invasion turned horrific crime spree. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, and these are some trust trustworthy, upstanding folks. I mean, I, I hope for the sake of these girls, you know, you said that Haley was undetermined whether the burns happened before or after death and that she died of smoke inhalation. And I hope that it was the, the smoke inhalation. Uh, that's a much more peaceful way to go than being freaking burned alive. It's just horrible, 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 horrible things. Okay, so we got these guys. We know what they did. We've got the confessions. I assume they've either been buried under the jail within a a month of this, or executed, right? Not quite. This is the part where I tell you that the first trial started more than three years later. Oh, good Lord, you freaking lawyers. So jury selection got going in January of 2010. Bill was there each day in court, even though he was recovering from a brain injury and only able to sleep a couple hours a night. He was living with his parents, waking up every night at 3 a.m., the same time the attack started. Oh, uh. After months of watching from the courtroom's gallery, he testified against Hayes, because Hayes' trial went first. But just think about this for a moment. Think about what Bill endured during this process. He survived the initial attack, hearing, seeing, and smelling awful things. And now, in the courtroom, Bill had to watch, had to see, had to look at the crime scene photos. The charred remains of his wife. He heard testimony about Haley's escape from her restraints only to die from smoke inhalation at the top of their stairs. He was subjected to gruesome debate about the nature of the sexual assault Michaela suffered. It's unimaginable. I don't know how this guy did not just lunge across the courtroom and put his hands around this guy's neck or quite honestly how bill managed to continue to put one foot in front of the other every day with, with this i mean you talk about ptsd and then triggers in the courtroom hmm. holy crap yeah absolutely it's um he, he's uh we'll get a little bit more into bill so i don't want to i don't want to give the farm away but um it, it, it's uh, yeah you're right 
So Hayes' trial got started on the September 13th, 2010, right? The defense argued that Komisar Jeski was the mastermind behind the home invasion and that he was responsible for escalating the violent nature of these crimes at every critical point. The prosecutors argued that both Hayes and Komisar Jeski shared responsibility, that it couldn't all be put off on Komisar Jeski as the mastermind. And once the trial concluded, the jury deliberated for about five hours, and they found Hayes guilty of 16 out of the 17 counts he was facing. About a month later, the sentencing phase of the trial began. The jurors now had to decide if Hayes should be executed or imprisoned for life. Deliberations began on November 5th, and the jury deliberated for about 17 hours over the course of four days before reaching a decision. And then on November 8th, 2010, the jury returned with a recommendation that Hayes be executed. They recommended a death sentence on each of the six capital felony counts for which Hayes was convicted. On December 2nd, 2010, Hayes apologized for the pain and suffering he caused the Pettit family and added that, quote, Death for me will be a welcome relief, and I hope it will bring some peace and comfort to those who I have hurt so much. You got any thoughts about that? I don't give a shit what he's got to say. <laughs> right. Uh, the judge checked off the formality of imposing six death sentences, one for each of the capital charges, and the judge then added a sentence of 106 years for good measure for the other crimes that were committed during the home invasion, including kidnapping, burglary, and assault. Before finishing with this, the judge said, quote, this is a terrible sentence, but is, in truth, a sentence you wrote for yourself in flames. May God have mercy on your soul. And Hayes was given an official execution date of May 27th, 2011. Okay, so is he worm food at this point? Or what, 13 to 12 years after that? Is he worm food at this point, or we got loopholes? Oh, not quite. Remember, lawyers. Oh, the judge noted at sentencing that even though he was setting an official execution date, if Hayes appealed, it would take decades longer for the execution to actually take place. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, like, you want to make sure you got the right guy. I get that. But at this point, you've got the confession. You've got a witness who is in that home. You got the daggone DNA. You got video. Like, he freaking did it. And I don't want to hear this stuff about, I'm sure, the, like you were saying, the defense attorney was arguing, well, it wouldn't have gone that bad if it wasn't for the other guy who said, this guy isn't fully, bullshit. Uh, what is that thing y'all talk about, in for a penny, in for a pound, or something like that? No, yeah. you were in, what did you think? You were not going there to bake cupcakes with this family. You got into this and, you, what, he held a gun to your head and made you rape some damn body? I don't think so. No, goodbye. You Bull. I'm sorry. So where are we at with this dude? Is he, are we still, it's 2024 now. Are we still appealing? Yeah, so I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, but let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about Komisar Jeski's trial first. Uh, so put a pin in that. Uh, Komisar Jeski's attorneys offered for him to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence, but prosecutors took the case to trial in order to see him put to death. His trial began on September 19, 2011. Unsurprisingly, the legal strategy was exactly the same as Hayes' trial. Komisar Jeski's attorneys blamed Hayes for the murders, arguing that Hayes was the criminal mastermind and that their client uh, was just a confused and easily led man who didn't mean to kill anybody. But nobody bought it. Komisar Jeski was found guilty on October 13th, and then on December 9, 2011, the jury recommended the death penalty again. And during the sentencing hearing on January or in January of 2012, 
The judge described the proceeding this way. Quote, this is a terrible sentence, but it's one that you wrote for yourself with deeds of unimaginable horror and savagery. So apparently this judge had this line that he, he liked to use, right? Because he's consistent, at least. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, could we spice it up here, Judge? <laughs> I, I, I had to bring those quotes out because I knew you'd find that interesting. So Komisar Jeski made a statement during the sentencing hearing, noting the jury who uh, recommended the death penalty for him, quote, believed him so worthless, even his very existence is deemed intolerable. True story. <laughs> the judge scheduled... His execution for July 20th, 2012. Uh, but Commissar Jeski f- filed and lost uh, at least six appeals. So uh, to keep on going, you know, it's it's still just rolling along there. Now, earlier you asked me just a minute ago if Hayes, uh, you know, if he had been deep fried or whatever, because we're well beyond a decade after his execution. Those appeals created some delay on the execution date, and then, you know, that just things get kicked down the road, and like you say, lawyers, and time passes. And As the cases were working their way through the appellate process, Connecticut threw everybody a curveball with these cases because the death sentences were actually converted into life sentences in August 2015. What, what is that about? Why? These guys should not be sucking up air that other people breathe. I mean, what happened there? So the state legislature decided to abolish the death penalty in Connecticut in 2015. At that time, both death sentences were converted because there's no more death penalty. And as we're talking about these guys being executed, uh, I'm thinking about how Hayes' own brothers felt about this. They wanted to see him put to death, and not out of compassion. This trial, says Matthew Hayes, flip the switch. I hope it doesn't even go that far, Brian Hayes said. I hope somebody puts a bullet in his head outside the courtroom. Now, after everything the man has survived, it's hard to imagine how profoundly this event has impacted Bill. It really is difficult to process. I I think for people who haven't experienced something like that, which a few of us have, we need to be really careful how we think about and interact with, with those who have been through this kind of thing. This exchange that I'm about to share on the steps of the courthouse after Hayes was convicted illustrates my point. Standing there shortly after the verdict, Bill said, quote, Michaela was an 11-year-old little girl, you know, uh, tortured and killed in her own bedroom, you know, surrounded by stuffed animals, and Haley had a great future and was a strong and courageous person. Then talking about his wife, Bill said, she helped so many kids and now she cannot do that. Bill continued on saying, we all know that God will be the final arbiter and I think the defendant faces far more serious punishments from the Lord than he can ever face from mankind. But then a reporter asked whether the conviction had brought Pettit closure and he responded, I don't think there's ever closure. I think whoever came up with that concept's an imbecile. There may not be closure, but Dr. Bill Pettit wants to make sure that the three ladies who lit up his life are not forgotten, that their memories are properly honored. He created the Pettit Family Foundation, and it does all sorts of great work. I want to share from that website, the the website for the foundation, what it says about the future of it. It says that it's their hope and goal to continue to raise and distribute funds to fulfill their mission. This includes providing help to educate young people, especially in sciences, to help support those with chronic illnesses, and 
help to protect those affected by violence. The many great things that have been inspired by the lives and memories of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela Pettit are well known, which in turn has enabled us to follow their example and help more people each year. It is nevertheless an ambitious goal, and we implore all who care to help us attain these important goals. You can find a link to the Pettit Family Foundation website in our show notes, and we'll make sure it's available on socials. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.